Join leading executives from ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Marks & Spencer, Heineken, and many more for a dedicated day of networking and panels at the Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit at Advertising Week Europe on Thursday the 16th of May at 180 Studios in London. Panel discussions will explore how to work with UK broadcasters in brand-funded entertainment, navigating the world of compliance, IP and distribution, creator partnerships, the future of digital branded content, brand-funded podcasts, and more. Delegate tickets are available now via telecast.com forward slash events at a very special discounted rate of £350 plus VAT which also grants delegates access to more than 100 sessions at the event over all three days from the 14th to the 16th of May. Join company presidents and CEOs, founders, futurists, influencers, agencies and execs from brands including Coca-Cola, TikTok, Google, Activision Blizzard, LinkedIn, Netflix and Deliveroo. Plus, celebrities including Drive Tribe's Richard Hammond and pop legends take that. Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit in association with 53 Degrees North Media at Advertising Week Europe on the 16th of May 2024. Get your tickets now at telecast.com forward slash events and level up your knowledge and contacts in the world of brand-funded entertainment. Telecast, the TV industry news review. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby, and welcome to another Telecast. On this week's show, I'm chatting with Richard Kingsbury, General Manager of International Channels at PBS Distribution, as we discuss the channels the US public service broadcaster operates in the UK and what content they're looking to acquire. Plus, I meet Wild Earth TV's co-founder and CEO, Graham Wallington, and hear all about their disruptive model, their unique content and viewer community, their channel distribution strategy, and how they're supporting conservation by harnessing the blockchain and NFTs. It's all coming up on this week's Telecast. My first guest this week is Richard Kingsbury, General Manager of International Channels at PBS Distribution. Richard, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm good, thank you. How are you, Justin? Very well. The sun's out. We've got glimpses of spring, which <laughs> is giving everybody a little bit of spring in their step, hopefully. But you know, really delighted for you to join us this week. I think pretty much everybody in the content industry is obviously aware of PBS in the US, but perhaps not so many are aware of its international scope and operations. So that's something that I'm really looking forward to discussing and finding out a little bit more about. But first of all, just as a recap, PBS is public service broadcaster in the US. Just tell us a little bit about your parent company, if you like, and how PBS is funded. Yeah, so uh, PBS stands for Public Broadcasting Service. Um, unlike in the UK, where we started with the BBC and then commercial television came along later, in the US, it was commercial television for many, many years, and then public broadcasting came into its own, was was launched, I think it was 50 years ago, it's about 1970. Around the US, there are over 300 individual member stations that are all kind of separate entities, all kind of independent in some ways, uh, but they're all members of the PBS network. They pay a, a membership fee, and in return, they get access to programming that's made and they have you know, elements of the schedule that are in common so that they can promote things together. Um, and then they have other parts of the schedule that are for local programming. 
And their funding is a mixture. They get a grant from the government, which is equivalent to 15% of their revenue. It's one five. And then 85% of their revenue is actually raised locally by the individual stations. So viewers in different parts of the country will support their their local station. Their, their local station will have drives to to try and get revenue uh, in. So it's uh, you know so it's a very different model to what we're used to um, in the UK and and other countries. Is there advertising on the service at all? There's there's no advertising. No. Okay, so PBS International. So you're based in London. Yes, we are in Bloomsbury in our lovely little office. Well, tell us about PBS International then and how you operate and also how PBS International is funded. We're owned by PBS Distribution. It was called PBS International back in the day, but it's now called PBS Distribution. And it's a bit like BBC Studios. So it's a commercial arm of PBS. Its job is really to raise money. To, uh, so it's a commercial entity to, to raise money that can be put back into the PBS network to make more public service programming. So that's its purpose. So internationally, channels is a relatively recent thing for PBS, but it's always been international. So program sales, a lot of PBS made programs are sold to broadcasters around the world. You know, a lot of a lot of programs. So, so you might have a documentary that appears on Channel 4 as a dispatches and appears in America on PBS as a frontline. Um, and similar with Science Programme, they have a Nova Strand. A lot of that programming is co-produced as well. Obviously, with the rise of SVOD and PBS distribution runs Amazon channels in the US, and we have a, an Amazon channel in the UK for PBS America, the documentary channel. And also, you know, with AVOD, the rise of AVOD, fast channels, etc. that's something that's we're, we're kind of gradually getting into. But linear channels, um, we first launched the first uh, linear channel outside the US was launched PBS America, uh, launched in the UK in, in 2011. And then since then, we've uh, launched PBS Kids in Africa in 2019 and extended that to Australia onto Foxtel last year. So that's an ongoing expansion, I suppose. So you sit within PBS distribution business. So the distribution business is obviously focusing on selling content internationally, but you're very much focused on channel distribution and building new partnerships and making sure the channels you mentioned get seen as as far and as wide as possible in as many territories as possible. My career before here was actually at UK TV. So I used to run the Good Food channel and the Yesterday channel there. But but coming into to, to run PBS, obviously it's much broader than just running the channel. You've got all your you know your platform deals, your distribution, your ad sales, your technology that you need to run as well. So it's a much broader uh, kind of remit. And it's a very small team. There's only four of us here that run the whole operation. That's a, a very small team to be working on a uh, as well-regarded and well-known channel as PBS America's. So that's, uh, that's pretty impressive how you're just four of you are working together. There's a lot of aspects of the channel that are done by partners. We don't commission any programming. It either comes to us because PBS distribution are distributing it. Some PBS programming will go to other broadcasters in the UK, so it may go some of the big Ken Burns series may premiere on, on BBC Two or BBC Four and then come to us later. Other content comes directly to us, uh, and then we supplement that. Then we acquire third-party content that we think is a good fit for the PBS brand and, and the proposition here in the UK. So really, you know, we're about acquisitions, we're about scheduling and marketing. So I think, I guess, not doing the commissioning side, that makes it a lot 
you know, more streamlined in terms of, you know, in terms of running it. Are you just entering into sort of bulk deals with distribution companies to fill the schedule? Or are you working with smaller program makers and uh, producers, enterprising producers who may have interesting back catalogues? Are you working directly with them? How does that work? Yeah, well, when we launched the channel in 2011, obviously, we we had a, the whole kind of PBS distribution catalogue to access. So we, we tried all kinds of things. We tried news, we tried lifestyle, history, science, nature. And what we found quite quickly was that what was working well was the history and some of the current affairs and some of the science. And so over time, we've kind of evolved into very much a kind of a history channel. Viewers are are open-minded about hi- historical stories from all over the world. And, and current affairs, where it's relevant to, to, to UK viewers, is also popular. Uh, and so we work with maybe 30-plus different distributors, you know, and we can, you know, sometimes they are bigger distributors there where we buy packages of content. Sometimes it's a, it's one individual filmmaker that contacts us about a film and, you know, and we, and we do a deal for one program. So it's, it's all very hand-picked, so we don't buy in bulk. We tend not to buy series maybe it's just the nature of the of, of the genre but a lot of one-offs about specific subjects but often they've been made for other public service broadcasters so we you know we buy a fair bit that's been on german television and french television italian television you know so uh and as long as it's you know it's got good experts and and, and, the, and the subject matter is relevant then it, it can work well in the uk Right. Okay. So, so mainly one-offs in the history space would be sort of bullseye, if you like. Presumably, there would be a benefit. It was tied up to an anniversary, for example, if it was uh, an anniversary in in the US or in the UK. How, how does that work? Because obviously, a lot of history programming is based around anniversaries and uh, a lot of that commissioning strategy. But how how does that work on the uh, acquisition side? In terms in terms of scheduling. Then Katie, who does who, who is our programming programming head, will have a whole, you know, calendar of, of anniversaries. So we had Australia Day a few days ago. So we had a whole day of Australia in colour, which is a lot of historical footage. You know, whether it's World War Two anniversaries, we'll have we'll have content to fit that, or you know, American uh, you know American anniversaries too. So yeah, anniversaries is definitely a marketing hook that that we use. What I've also found in terms of acquiring content is that that often the the content that's available in the UK that's been commissioned here covers similar subjects that historically we come back to the same subjects and we, we let's have another look at the Battle of Britain or another look at D Day or the Dambusters and what I like in a way when I'm talking when I'm talking to distributors from other countries is that often that they look at different topics that actually turn out to be really interesting to British viewers. So we've, we've brought a couple of series from ZDF, for example. Uh, one was about the Spanish Civil War, which is, and, and, and General Franco's reign, and, you know, incredible stories. Uh, but it's just never, there's never been a series that I that I know of it, that commissioned by a UK broadcaster. They had a series about the Yugoslav conflict, which I remember as a child on the news. But to actually understand where that came from and how and what happened and a proper historical look at that I think was really valuable and our audience really like that so it's something that's kind of on the edge of that they know a bit about it but but they'd like to know more um, and you know I'm just I've been watching a series made by Arte which is the history of the Red Army uh, just you know that, that kind of especially with current events just understanding the history of you know how where the, the Red Army came from 
you know, the Stalin's purges, the experience of World War Two, and then the experience of the Cold War is just a, a really valuable uh, perspective on things, which I think are, I'm hoping that our audience will enjoy. You made a really interesting point, actually, is when it comes to addressing historical events, you know, you become used to focusing on clearly on on events that that, that your country participated in, or whatever. But and sometimes to the detriment of a wider knowledge of European history or, or events happening in, in various other parts of the world, which are equally impactful, maybe, but maybe not directly on user nation. Eco broadcasters have got to think about: is this going to rate? And if they're going to put a lot of money into it, they need to, they need confidence. So that, I think I think I think there's always you you tend to kind of go back to the subjects that you know will get an audience. I mean, obviously, acquisition is is one way of getting programming in at a, at a, at a slightly lower cost. You know, for example. Um, there's the Vietnam War series that Ken Burns made, which has been a huge hit on our channel. But it actually uh, launched on the, on the BBC. Uh, you know, it's a long, it's a big series. It's, it's a multi-hour series, and there was, I guess, a question mark as whether an audience would come back to it. And actually, it did exceptionally well, and it was getting six hundred, seven hundred thousand viewers. And I think, in some ways, the success of that changed opinions about what people were willing to to enjoy. And so, I think. After that, we saw the in-depth series on Channel 4 about, I think it was about Margaret Thatcher, the Thatcher years. Um, and then there was the great uh, series, I think it was BBC, about the Troubles. So I think if, if a subject is big enough and rich enough, then a, multi, a multi-part series. And that deep dive, I think, just gives you uh, a much better level of insight into the topic and, uh, you, know, is a real, it sh- uh, you know, should be really treasured. So how how do I access PBS America now, Richard, in, in the UK? And what about other different territories? How 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 can we access it? Well, we're just I mean, really, just in the UK at the moment. We are on Freeview, so we're on Channel eighty four on Freeview. We're also on Sky Sky. I think we're one seven four and uh, Virgin two seven six FreeSat one five five. I'm sure I got one of those wrong. <laughs> um, we have an Amazon channel. We don't currently have a streaming option, but we are looking into that. We're a bit a bit behind the game on that but we'll we'll catch up and that would be like a fast channel for example you yeah fast I mean, fast channels that that is definitely a new thing we do actually have a fast channel with samsung tv plus we also run that in australia as well but i think you know in the uk is is definitely our main market for on the dock side on the kids side you know we have the kids channel uh, on multi-choice in south Af- in africa sub-saharan africa foxtel um in australia and We've just launched on MediaNet in the Maldives. So these are all three places I'd, I'd quite like to be at the moment. But there you go. I'm, I'm assuming your carriage strategy is nothing to do with the locations there that you mentioned, Richard. Jokes have been made on that subject. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I think I would probably come in for a bit of stick on that. So how about this year then? There's enormous amount of disruption happening within the TV industry now. You know, we're, we're seeing the advent of fast. We're seeing... How the the SFOD wars and enormous amounts of competition there, and and it's fascinating to see how that develops up on a weekly basis. How do you see PBS America then developing over the next year and in the years ahead? I think you know in the UK it's just it's mainly about scale. Is because you, the challenge of running a channel business is that you have really high fixed distribution costs that if you're a small channel, can be a huge percentage of your revenue. So you basically have to pay that before you could 
you've got any margin that you can use to spend on programming and marketing. So that's a real challenge for small channels. Uh, whereas for the biggest channels, the distribution is a tiny proportion, and therefore they've got more they've got more to more to play with, more margin to play with to, for programming. So it's it's just about growing the audience, growing the reputation. It's a slow, steady business of building up reputation and continuing to fuel the channel with with good new programming to keep the people coming back. In terms of other European territories, I think the challenge there is that is localization is that localize, to localize everything comes with a high cost, and we just wouldn't have the confidence to sort of spend hundreds of thousands subtitling everything for a, a territory and hoping that we get the money back. So we kind of need to, we we have to have a deal where where a platform will help us cover that to take that risk and we haven't got to that point yet so there's no sort of imminent plans to to launch out any further so we're very focused on the uk uh, and it's just building up scale and the the bigger you get the more money you then you've got to spend on marketing and and programming uh, and it becomes a kind of a you know virtuous circle but you know we're also conscious of the fact that obviously there is a a slow drift away from linear it's exaggerated i think by some people but that it is there i mean our audiences are older audiences and they are not necessarily drifting away or or their streaming viewing is incremental to their linear viewing uh, but we are conscious that actually that uh, apps etc catch up provides a convenience that people miss things at the moment if i get an email from a viewer saying i missed this program i heard about this program then i say our copy in Katie and say, well, Katie will get back to you when we next schedule it, which is yeah. kind of quite an old fashioned way of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and often we get back to them six months later and say, oh, by the way, we scheduled it again. It's on, on Friday and, the, and they're very grateful. But obviously there are better ways of doing that and that's something we're looking into. So hopefully we'll have some news on that front in the next sort of few months. Coming back to what we were talking about, opportunities for the industry to work with you and uh, PBS America. So in terms of content, if I'm an enterprising producer, I've got a, a great history program, which is, you know, I'm thinking it must be right up Richard Street here. How do I get in touch with you, first of all? And should I be thinking of singles only? If I have a, a great documentary series, a six-parter, should I, should I say, oh, it's, it's not going to be for Richard or is it is it singles only? We're very happy to take series as well as singles. It's just the way it comes off. Often the big series are commissioned by a network that wants to hang on to them because it's about building brands. And if they can build volume and brands, then that's that's valuable to them. In terms of contacting me, then it's very simply rkingsbury at pbs.org. And I would say, you know, if you're if if you're a distributor or producer that has been that's made a commissioned a program for a broadcaster outside the UK that you have English versions of would be very interested. If you're a producer in the UK that has made a program for a, a terrestrial broadcaster and that you have still have the secondary rights, then we'd love to talk to you. So, you know, very much open door. You know, we, as I said, we do deals with individual filmmakers for one program and we do packages with more established distributors. So either is fine. When it comes to doing your deals then, like everybody else, you've no doubt been, you know, sat on Zooms and in endless screening rooms over the last sort of two years uh, during the pandemic. And hopefully we're, we're putting most of that behind us now. 
Do you attend many markets? Are you at uh, things like Science Congress and MIP TV and MIPCOM? Do you travel a lot when times allow? Yeah, I mean, the, the PBS distribution sales team will attend many markets, you know, obviously the MIPS, you know, standing side of the dock, IDFAR, hot docs, real screen, there's a whole circuit, as you as you know. Mm. You know, we would tend to go to MIP because it's close. <laughs> it's only an easy jet away, you know, but the markets aren't key for us, I suppose, because over time we've just, you know, as I said, we've got 30 plus distributors that we work with. It's just a, it, MIP's a nice way of checking in with all of them in, in a in a short period of time and they get their shortlist ready for you and you can give them quick answers on things. Uh, but we know who they are and we, we meet up, you know, so probably every six months we'll check in with them and say, what what, what have you got that's new or that's available? You know, we'll, we'll get the links, we'll screen them and then we'll make a, a decision. So, uh, so, 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 so we like going to markets, but they're not, I said, they're not, you know, we, we can, we can, uh, we can survive without them. Finally, I just wanted to chat about public service broadcasting because particularly in the UK, there's a battle raging or, or battle lines are being drawn, should I say, around public service broadcasters with the current government. And uh, we've talked about you know, the, uh, how the licence fee is going to be funding the BBC and various discussions that are happening there. And also Channel 4 is uh, a certain amount of threat of privatisation there. In terms of public service broadcasting, in your view, how do we keep or do they keep themselves relevant and providing value? Is PBS under similar pressure in the US to the BBC and Channel 4 here, for example? I think in the, in the US, because you don't have a, a license fee, it's not a hot button in the, in the same way. You know, it's, a, it's a different model, I suppose. What is public broadcasting? It's, it's one of those very broad terms that can mean different things to different people. You know, PBS would break it down and talk about promoting literacy, informing people about political and social issues, giving people an understanding of American history, giving people an appreciation of the ethnic diversity of the country, giving people an understanding of science and technology, awareness of health issues. So they would break it down. And those things seem to me like good things to do. Obviously, any any program or any channel can can help with that. So it's not just public service broadcasters that, that can deliver against that. But I think there is a value to having some network that is focused on that primarily. Uh, because I think if you have a commercial fo- focus, you know, there's always a temptation to prioritise what will be popular over what will be valuable sometimes, you know. But I think it's up to every country to work out how important that is for them and how they want to fund it, you know. And there are different models around the world. You know, some 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 is done through tax. Obviously, we have a licence fee. In different countries, it's a different amount of money that goes into it. Now it's time for Story of the Week, the TV industry news story that caught my guest's eye in the past seven days. Richard, what's your Story of the Week? My Story of the Week is the relaunch of BBC Three as a linear channel, which I believe is on the 1st of February. Yeah, that's just launched in the UK. So what what caught your eye about that story then, Richard? What's your views on uh, BBC Three? Is that a good move, do you think? Yeah, I think it is a good move. I I suppose I am a passionate believer in, in the importance of channel brands. And I think that I think it, they can be underappreciated. And I think a good channel, you know, a, creating a destination for a particular type of content, for a particular audience, I think you've got an opportunity to, to, to build a reputation, to create habit 
where people come and check you out. You know, from my experience, when people do go to live television, they go to the biggest channels first, often see if there's anything big on that they they want to watch. And if there's nothing there that catches their eye, they then go somewhere else. And you want to be one of the other places that they go. Some people will go to sports channels, you know, you know, some people go to lifestyle, food programming or whatever. Uh, and so if you can be in that next tier of channels, and I think people maybe only have a handful of those channels that they go to regularly, then that's the dream in a way, because that's that's what gives you scale. So I think, you know, I think BBC took BBC Three online. I don't think it was the right thing to do. I think they lost lost kind of prominence. And they, they maybe broke that habit with that audience. And obviously in the years in between, the, that audience have fragmented and, you know, are viewing all kinds of things and all kinds of devices. And I think it is important for public broadcasters to think about their reach amongst all different demographics, that they should really be universal as far as possible. I mean, it's really hard because there's, a, there's so much competition. Uh, and I thought that, you know, BBC Three was a fantastic channel when it went, you know, when it was a linear channel, you know, I just hope they've got the funding to kind of get it back to where it was. I, I'm sure it will take time. It may, you know, may, may never be as big as it was because I think it has moved on. It Viewing is more fragmented, but I still think it's a positive move. So let's, let's see how that develops. I mean, it is kind of quite strange, isn't it? When you look at the conversation we just had about the BBC and how that's been funded and now you see a new channel being launched you wonder you wonder how sustainable that is going to be in its own right in another three four years you know there may be the decisions that they have to make that they're going to have to shut down channels so let's let's hope BBC3 is you know given the time to build its audience again as you say it was it was pretty distinct in its time wasn't it uh, in terms of its brand personality and the sort of programming that it launched the bbc and other public broadcasters often super serve an older audience uh and, and do very well with the kids audience but it's the kind of the bit in between you know it's, it's it, and it's just making sure you don't lose a generation of viewers and assume that they'll come back to you when they're older you know i think bbc3 when it was in its pomp showed that you could you know and, and other channels like itv2 and e4 do extremely well with that audience uh, and there are lots of 16 to 34s watching, you know, big shows on on the, on the terrestrials. So I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a myth that they that they're all just that they're not watching live television and that they don't come to linear channels, even though obviously it's much more fragmented than it used to be. And now it's time for Richard's Hero of the Week and Get in the Bin nominations. Richard, who's your Hero of the Week? Well, I'm not interested in tennis, but my Hero of the Week is Roger Federer. Right. We've, you know what? We've had a run of tennis nominations. <laughs> now, a few of them have been getting in the bin, actually, when it comes to Djokovic and uh, his antics in Australia. But yours is the hero of the week. When Rafa Nadal won his 21st Grand Slam at the weekend in, a, in an epic match, um, there was a really lovely post by Roger Federer on Instagram that, that, that seemed really heartfelt, actually, this just sort of congratulating Rafa on surpassing his own record i just thought we need more people like that in the world yeah no absolutely it was extraordinary because it was a five and five hour 20 match i mean i'm not a big tennis fan but i i couldn't help noticing about two hours into the match social media started setting a light you know just everybody's going look at what's nadal doing so you know i think it'd be interesting to see what those viewing figures are like and how they were accelerating to see him winning at the end. Okay. And how about 
getting in the bin? Who or what are you telling to get in the bin, Richard? I struggled with this one because there are so many things to be concerned and angry about at the moment. They're too big for the bin. <laughs> yeah, okay. And then I thought, well, maybe I, should, I need to think of something kind of witty and, and minor. So I was thinking maybe Wordle grids on Twitter. But then I started playing Wordle. So, I, I, But I haven't actually p- shared my unimpressive results, but I, th- I thought it would be hypocritical uh, for me. And then I thought, well, maybe actually it's just getting angry about things that we need to put in the bin. It's just confected anger. that other, These days we seem to have arguments about things that we never used to, that nobody cared about in the past, that, that suddenly become uh, something to, to fight over. And so uh, it's con- confected anger I'd like to put in the bin and let's get angry about the things that, that, that really matter. Yeah, quite right. That's surely just a, uh, a result of social media, isn't it, I think? You see people getting awfully angry on social, mm. and it does. Sometimes you have to put your phone down, don't you, or your uh, or step away from your your laptop, and and think. Actually, you know, time's too precious for sort of sort of you know very angry conversation that are going on. And when you say about Wordle, I mean, I I've come across it. I'm not going there. I haven't got time for this. Who has? Who has? I don't know. Did you get it? Are you now a, a bit of a Wordle fan then? Well, my, my wife's a big Sudoku, any any kind of puzzle she loves. You know, I, I read a book or whatever, but this one is, is it's kind of accessible enough to hook you in because it's, it's that they're, I think they're, they're only sort of five letters, I think. So it's, it's not too, it's, it's kind of about my level. Right. Okay. Right. Richard, thank you so much for joining us this week. Really enjoyed hearing about PBS America and everything that's going on with the channel. We'll, Keep our eyes peeled for those developments that you said are coming in the in the coming few months, and uh, hopefully uh, there'll be some uh, enterprising producers or smaller distributors that maybe that you haven't uh, come across yet will be getting in touch with you with some new programming for the channel. Thank you very much, Justin. I enjoyed it. My next guest on this week's show is co-founder and CEO of Wild Earth TV, Graham Wallington. Thanks for coming on the show, Graham. How are you doing? Thank you, Justin. It is a pleasure to be here with you. What I think is really interesting about Wild Earth TV is it's a great example of a technology-savvy content business disrupting perhaps the most traditional sector of the TV industry, which is natural history. So for those who don't know Wild Earth TV, tell us how the business started, how it developed, and talk us through the journey as to where you are now. The whole concept is really about making people feel remotely present in nature. And it kind of actually it began as, as a webcam sort of idea where there was no people or anything. It was just, just a webcam. Uh, in fact, back in 1998 with a 30-second refreshing JPEG and no audio. Uh, and what, it, what we realized straight away was that people absolutely love this feeling of being able to connect with nature you know, from the other side of the world. And the evolution really took us from a pure webcam type approach to where we are today, which is where we have teams of different people around, different experts in, in different reserves. Each team, either they're on a vehicle or they're on foot, is made up of a naturalist um, with that, that is both qualified and experienced in that area, as well as a camera operator. And what they do is they go out, obviously it's unscripted, we've got no idea what we're going to find. They send their high-definition feeds back to our control room in Johannesburg, either via satellite uplinks or uh, terrestrial fiber links with microwave coming into that, 
or by bonded mobile, depending on the environment and the situation. These feeds will come into our control room where directors and engineers will then select between different feeds to output onto our channel. And really what it is, is a series of sightings. That's what we call them. When we you know, come around a corner and there's a herd of elephants, it's a sighting. And the whole way it's done is that it's live, it's interactive, it's shot in a POV style. And all of this is designed to make our, our audience feel like they're sitting on the back of that vehicle and enjoying that experience themselves. Over the years, we've, we've filmed from every kind of location, from underwater in the, in the Caribbean to India to um, uh, all over. But our bread and butter is Africa. Um, and we do two safaris every day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And this is the best time to view wildlife. Um, and so we have a sunrise safari and a sunset safari, three and a half hours in the morning, four hours in the afternoon. And our kind of our home base, if you will, our kind of the, the heart of, of our story is a reserve called Juma Game Reserve, uh, which is in the Great Kruger National Park in South Africa. Uh, we have a camp there and several teams that radiate out onto a variety of different reserves that are unfenced to each other in that area, where we've been following animals for generations, uh, literally four or five generations of leopards that we've known in the territories in that area. And that's the central kind of content of it. The format of our channel from a schedule point of view is we start with a sunrise safari in, in the African morning. Straight after that, we go for an hour at Stony Point Reserve in the Western Cape. Uh, this is where there is a uh, an African penguin colony. We call this one hour Penguin Beach, where we'll we'll, we'll sit with a naturalist um, on the beach uh, and and you know see the penguins, the oyster catchers, sometimes seals, even orcas, uh, whales if it's in season. And uh, we'll spend time there getting to, you know, spend time with the birds. You'll be surprised. You just never get bored of spending time with penguins. And then what we'll do is we'll do um, repeats of yesterday's safari after that. Sometimes, and until quite recently every day, we would then spend an hour underwater uh, in what we call the Sea Forest Show, also in the Western Cape. Here we spend an hour free diving um, in the kelp forest with a a team of two naturalists this time that are talking over that live video. Uh, that's not on at the moment, though. And then we go into our sunset safari. Uh, again, this is also from Juma Game Reserve, Pride Lands Reserve, Ngala, recently Tswalu and Pinder as well. We uh, also have broadcast extensively from the Masai Mara in Kenya. We're not there at the moment, but we'll be back there shortly as the migration heats up uh, in the coming months. That runs for four hours. We call it the Sunset Safari because it runs up to and a little bit just after sunset. And then we repeat the Sunrise Safari and then carry on through the night with repeats until the following morning again. Okay, so would you characterize this as slow TV? Because it, it sounds fantastic and sounds something that you can just, you know, have on all the way through, you know, maybe if you're at work, you know, maybe you can have it open in a little uh, window of your computer or maybe something to, you know, to sit around with a family and watch and see what happens. But as you say, you know, I guess some t you never know what's going to happen. You come around a corner and actually there's nothing there. Or you may come around the corner and there's a wildebeest being chased by lions or something. 
the slow TV is such an interesting term because it, it, it means different things to different people. But I, I think that definitely that is part of part of what's going on here. But I would I would characterize it more as experiential TV. You know, I, I often tell the story that, um, you know, media kind of began where a hunting party would leave the cave and go and search for mammoth for a few days. And then they'd come back to the cave to tell the rest of the clan about what, what had happened on the hunt. And they would, through dance and, and singing and storytelling, tell the story of what happened to them. And really what we've evolved over time is a more and more efficient way of telling stories of, of the experience that the storyteller had. Wild Earth is trying to change the narrative here where we're allowing those that are around the fire staying behind to go on the expedition. We're, we're instead of coming back and telling the, the documentary of what happened, we're, we're allowing people to feel like they're actually having that experience themselves. So our mission is not weirdly to entertain, but rather to faithfully recreate the experience of being on safari or going scuba diving or going for a walk in the forest. Um, that's our, our focus. And if we should happen to come across a wildebeest being chased by a lion, then that's nature. We're trying not to build that expectation of what you would expect from a documentary where, you know, you want to see that sort of excitement. This is more just being present. It's more of a, a meditative experience sometimes, but sometimes it can be super exciting. Yeah, so it actually is experiential in in that sense, and and there is an element of interaction, isn't there, with the naturalists that are on the safaris themselves? Well, absolutely. In fact, there's quite a few layers to the uh, interactivity. If you imagine the surface of the interactivity, is that our viewers are, are are invited to send questions they might have for the naturalist across Twitter or chat or or, or various other emails. In the case of kids at schools. And, um, and then uh, we have our, our second director is responsible for looking through and sifting through all of that interact, all those questions and picking the most pertinent, relevant questions of the, of the moment and then feeding it through to the naturalist in the field who then turn to the camera and say, Justin in London would like to know why zebras have got stripes, you know, and, and, and answer that question, you know, right there on air. But what happens for all the other people who don't get their question answered in that moment, you know, because we can only answer, you know, very few of the questions, seeing somebody else's question come online suddenly makes people realize, hold on, I'm not watching this alone. I'm watching this along with a whole lot of other people at the same time. And this triggers community. And so we've got tons of different communities on Twitter, on Facebook, on, on Twitch, and uh, in various different chat groups where these people are interacting with each other. And oftentimes newbies will ask questions, which people who've been watching for many years will be able to answer. Uh, in fact, it's gotten so much to the point that, that there are many of our viewers that are able to identify individual animals faster than our naturalists. And sometimes the questions go the other way. So the naturalist will turn to the audience and say, now, which leopard is this? And, uh, and they'll quickly send that information in and say, oh, okay. You know, Susie in Idaho, uh, you know, says that this is Tingana the leopard. So interactivity is at the heart of making people feel not only furtherly present in nature, but also connected with other like-minded people around the world. 
that's really a trend, isn't it, that I think that we've seen, particularly that's been highlighted through COVID, is that, you know, shared experiences are really important, but also closeness to nature is something that I think a lot of people have really craved. So so it's interesting to hear that, you know, that your community's, you know, really active and, and building. In 2020, from between March and April 2020, we saw a five-fold, five-fold, 500% growth in our global audience in just one month. And this was where the lockdowns all around the world kicked in. And I think it kind of brought home to everyone just how important that access to nature, whether it's just a walk in the park or even a walk down the street, when it's taken away, the desire to escape the uncertainty, the the, the, the lockdown, uh, seemed to just drive a lot of people into our channel. Uh, we've got an audio clip here. This is a group of vultures on a buffalo carcass. Let's take a listen. Amazing action here. Amazing Hyenas running everywhere, white-backed vultures being numerous and frantic as always, hissing. Hooded vultures staying on the outskirts. This is where they killed the buffalo. Can you believe it? Look at it. Haven't had action like this in ages. I love vulture sightings. This must have been when the carcass was. They're tearing, they're crunching, they're pulling. I love vultures. They get very aggressive with one another as well. The white bacter are the most common and the most numerous, especially at a kill site. So, Greg, tell us a little bit about the financial aspect of Wild Earth TV. So it's obviously something you've built communities, people are interacting. Now, you've been producing content for third-party networks, haven't you, over the years? That's changing. Tell us about that. For a very long time, Wild Earth produced Safari Live, our live safaris, which we licensed to National Geographic. We licensed it in two parts. One is we licensed television shows that were put on Nat Geo Wild for many years, for four or five years, I think, Um, and maybe 20 shows a a year or, or more than that. And then also we licensed the daily two live safaris for them on their website and various social media, Facebook, YouTube, etc. And then in 2019, we unfortunately lost this ongoing contract simply because we could not deliver our daytime live African safari into American East Coast prime time in daylight. And people don't expect to go to Africa on safari in infrared, black and white. It was difficult for us to get it into this time. And this really forced a pivot from where more than 95% of our revenue was coming from a B2B relationship where we were licensing shows to um, to Nat Geo into a direct-to-consumer business model in two parts. The one part is advertising, which, you know, doesn't really require much explanation, but although I'll I'll get to that in terms of fast advertising in a second, we were generating advertising revenue on social to the extent to which you can. It's a real challenge, as you know. I mean, you can do it, but wow, it's it's difficult. And then also we we have a program, a subscription program uh, called Explorers, where people can, can subscribe monthly to be an explorer, and not only can they watch our live channel, but they can also get a whole bunch of additional content. 
from fireside chats to town halls to special content that we we put together for our explorers, opportunities on merchandising, etc., etc., etc. It was the shift to direct to consumer. What's happened in the past year, maybe a little bit more than a year, is we've really seen a, a substantial shift towards fast, a free advertising supported streaming television, um, which I'm, I'm sure your listeners are, are very accustomed to or aware of. And we've seen a massive rise there. So we've achieved a significant amount of distribution with Samsung Plus, Plex, Roku, kind of all the usual suspects. And that's been phenomenal because the demand, of course, for connected TV addressable advertising far exceeds the demand and the revenue that you can achieve from mobile or desktop advertising, you know, on the internet or social. I mean, you've built up a pretty good audience on YouTube, right? There's about three, three, four hundred thousand followers on YouTube. But actually, you're pivoting away, aren't you? You're pivoting towards fast from YouTube. The, the the challenge with YouTube was that because we do such long form shows, you know, four hour show, four hour broadcast, it's incredibly difficult to use their advertising tools to be able to put ad breaks in that don't interrupt the viewer experience. Essentially, you can have mid rolls, but they just get triggered in the middle of a sighting. It's very disruptive. It's very unpleasant. That was the one problem with, with YouTube. The other problem with YouTube is that the revenue that you can actually achieve from advertising is, is quite small uh, in terms of what you actually get out per ad done. Um, but we built up, as you say, to 380,000 subscribers and sometimes up to 11,000, 12,000 concurrent live viewers on a show with, with hundreds of thousands per day watching these shows. And so what we did was we pivoted last year already to stopping to broadcast our full safaris. We still broadcast the first hour on YouTube. Um, but then what we do is if you want to carry on watching the broadcast, you have to move to our channel to watch it. And you can watch it on your connected TV, but you can also watch it on our mobile apps, Android and iOS. You can watch it on our Roku app, Samsung apps, LG app. And in this situation, what we are able to do is that after a sighting, our directors are able to insert an ad break. It's a, it's, a, it's a floating ad break, so it's not a scheduled ad break. And then this triggers downstream our ad insertion partners to be able to insert ads that don't disturb the viewer experience. These are connected TV ads where we've got direct relationships with advertisers. And so we really migrated our viewer community from YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook onto our various different apps on these various different platforms. Channel distribution has been a main focus for you over the past few months. What's next for you then in this journey? I mean, are you still looking for new fast partners? Always. We're still in the foothills of fast, I think. It's definitely far from plateauing. Uh, it's growing like the clappers. There are new entrants coming on all the time. We, we've just launched on Zizner's uh, platforms. Sling, we just launched on. Uh, we just launched across Europe with Samsung+. Plus. We've got a whole bunch of new ones that are busy being integrated and coming on with literally new entrants into this space on, a, on an almost daily basis. So Fast is definitely, um, for the foreseeable future, a, a big focus. 
Um, but what we're also seeing is a, is a very exciting development taking place in the Web3 space with non-fungible tokens from a revenue point of view. This doesn't change distribution, of course, but it does change the interactivity that the audience has with the, with the content and with the characters and the animals. I can explain a bit more about that in a moment. But definitely from a distribution point of view, we are seeing big growth on fast. But, and it's an important but, Justin, the linear traditional pay TV channels remain super important. We're distributed on various different um, of the traditional pay TV platforms. They remain an incredibly important part of our advertising revenue and our audience. For example, in, in Africa, we're on the DSTV, the multi-choice platform. And of course, Across Africa, there are still a large number of potential viewers that simply don't have the broadband fiber connectivity that you might see elsewhere in the world, or they've got the connectivity, but it's mobile and very expensive. There's a preference for the more traditional distribution of of pay television, and not just in Africa, but elsewhere in the world as well. So really, these things are all running parallel. Instead of sort of one replacing another, it's more that it's just all expanding into into different options. You mentioned non-fungible tokens. Now, that's something that I think a lot of people in the TV industry are trying to get to grips with at the moment and looking at, at the opportunity. So tell us about this. So you've launched a range of non-fungible tokens, which are enabling your community to invest in the characters and the wildlife you see. Tell us a bit more about that. We've just launched what we call the Genesis Collections. These are 25 collections of non-fungible tokens. Each collection pertains to an individual wild animal. So not a species, an individual wild animal that we have seen repeatedly, that we've come to know well, that is in our library. We've recorded every single frame since 2008. We have a huge library, as you can imagine. These 25 animals each have a collection of non-fungible tokens. It was very important to us that we minted these non-fungible tokens on a low-carbon blockchain. So we chose the Polygon blockchain, which is a a layer two sidechain of the Ethereum blockchain. The problem with Ethereum is that while that's where 98% of the market, if you will, in non-fungible tokens is, the reality is, is that it's an incredibly energy intense blockchain. And we just couldn't reconcile our desire to build these conservation NFTs with the carbon use of Ethereum, which is why we chose the Polygon blockchain. The viewers are able to and have bought these individual non-fungible tokens, which allows them to feel a sense of custodianship for these animals because 40% of the initial sale and 8% of every future sale um, of that token on the secondary market is rooted back to the habitat custodian on which that animal lives. And, and really what we're trying to do here is we're trying to build a alternative revenue source for these reserves 
which is pandemic proof. Because what happened was that, well, obviously hunting, which was the original revenue source, uh, is, is very consumptive. You, you just can't keep scaling hunting. You know, it, it can contribute undoubtedly to conservation, but you can't shoot all the animals um, because, well, then you've got nothing left. Then along comes tourism, which is great because now you're not consuming the animals in the same way, but there still is some harm and negative impact if you have too many tourists on the reserve. But of course, if a pandemic comes along, as just happened, suddenly your revenue evaporates. And these reserves found themselves in a situation where overnight they had lost all income. What we're building is an alternative that allows them to generate revenue that is non-consumptive of the animals and at the same time doesn't require the tourists to physically travel to the location. What it gives the, the holders of these NFTs is an opportunity to feel like they are kind of meta-custodians, custodians of specific animals in the metaverse. And what's going to happen is that we've got a roadmap where people will be able to log into our, our app and see all the sightings of the animal that they've collected. And including some of the new television sets, like Samsung have just announced that their new television sets will be able to display your non-fungible tokens. And what that means is that if you've got a non-fungible token for the leopard Tlalamba, for example, you come down in the morning uh, for your cup of coffee and you look at the TV and you see the latest sighting of that specific animal that you're following, is it's an opportunity for you to stay connected to the animal uh, and to feel that sense of custodianship knowing that you're contributing to the conservation of the home in which that animal lives. And we're very excited about the opportunity of both giving our audience a closer relationship with specific animal characters and also helping the conservation of those animals. And, and the final point here, and I think it's an important one for, for, for your audience, Justin, is that human beings, in order to empathize with a story, with a narrative, they need a character. Uh, you know, we've kind of learned this over time is that human beings in a story really need to, you know, bind on to that character and follow that character's story and challenges and opportunities. And we've seen this over the years, how important it is to follow those animals. And so this is really our attempt to take this kind of character following concept in wildlife to the next level. Uh, in Web 3.0 and try to find a way for people to remotely connect with individual animals and feel a sense of custodianship. And now it's time for Story of the Week, the TV industry news story that's caught my guest's eye in the past seven days. Graham, what's your Story of the Week? It's not really TV industry, it's gaming, so it's media, but um, I was quite intrigued by a few of the of the gaming companies who were wanting to launch NFT projects and have had a real backlash from their gaming customers who feel that it might actually ruin the experience and is bad for the environment. And that was kind of counterintuitive and I found really interesting. It's an evolving area, isn't it? And I guess that people's reactions and responses are going to be developed over time. It's also it's just coming to people's consciousness that Actually, NFTs are really bad for the environment, aren't they? Or some of them are, like you were mentioning earlier on, the Ethereum blockchain. Exactly. Some of them can be. And, and I think that our job is, you know, as it always is in media, and as we always pioneer new things, 
is to listen carefully to our customers, our audiences, and make sure that we're communicating and reacting and, and, and really empathizing with what they're feeling. Um, so I found it very interesting. And now it's time for your Hero of the Week and Get in the Bin nominations, Graham. So first of all, who's your Hero of the Week? So my Hero of the Week is the Omicron virus. Oh. Exactly. It's a little bit different. I'll tell you why. Is because I think that this virus, how it evolved into the Omicron variant, saved an immense number of lives. I feel that it was so viral and yet, you know, it was so much less severe that it, it kind of worked almost like a natural um, or is working like an almost like a natural vaccination. And in a way, I know it's kind of weird to, you know, to, to give the virus the hero of the week. But I think I think Omicron helped us out of this situation to a large extent. All right. Well, that's an interesting approach. But the Omicron variant is your hero of the week. And who or what is getting in the bin, Graham? Well, I've got to put this Ukraine crisis in the bin. Uh, it's not an individual. I'm not going to you know, blame it on an individual, although there are obviously individuals involved. But however the world got itself in this situation is really, really unfortunate. Um, and and I've I got to say it's got to go in the bin. We, we, you know, we, we, we need to be we. I mean, those who are in control need to be adult about this. What the planet does not require right now is a war in the Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, the thought of another land war in Europe is just just too too shocking to imagine really. So uh yeah, let's 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 hope over the coming few days and weeks that there's a bit of sense will prevail. Graham, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really fascinating to hear about Wild Earth TV, NFTs your fast strategy and how things are going. Wishing you all the very best for the future and we'll see you very soon. Thank you very, very much, Justin. It's a, it's a real pleasure. I love the show. Keep going. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Well, that's about it for another week's show. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to Telecast and share it with friends and colleagues. We've got a brand new website that includes exclusive feature content from TV's opinion leaders and journalists. They're all free to access. Just sign up at telecast.com. And while you're there, why not sign up for our free newsletter too, Telecast Plus. You can also follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in London. Until next week's show, as always, stay safe.